Now, this chapter starts with a bit of a surprise, I suppose, because it's not the start of the call of Abraham. You can read about a little bit more in the preceding chapter, um, the call of Abraham. Actually, my slide says the calling of Abraham. Oh, dear. Never mind. So here's a, here's a, a painting of what it might have looked like. It's a very romanticized image of what it might have looked like. I'm sure it was very, very different. But Abraham, I don't know how you might feel in your life at the moment, whether you're comfortable where you are, whether you're settled in your role in life or whether you've got um, issues that are concerning you. Years ago, I'm going, to, I'm going to tell a little bit of a, a story that um, may or may not be relevant, but I'm going to use it anyway. It's, I don't really like doing this, but it's a story of my life. There we go. About 12, 13 years ago, God unsettled us and unsettled us to a great degree. And we ended up joining a mission organization. And it was a great cost that we had to pay. You may not know this, but we had to give up our home and our jobs. I was already unemployed at the time. Lydia had to give her work up. And we had to pack our house up, put it into storage, and do three months intensive training, not knowing if we would be accepted or not but the call was quite clear and uh, there's a bit of a story behind that but we'll we can talk about that on another day but the point is that we had to make a decision to step out in faith we weren't sure where we were going to end up we had a, an idea but we moved from the affluent south to the grim north, as we were told. And uh, when I began to think about this, my boss said, oh, you don't want to go up to Leeds. Now, not long been unemployment and all this happened, but before that, he said, you don't want to go to Leeds. They may be friendly, but if you upset them, you'll know about it and they'll never forgive you. I've been here 12 years now. I probably upset a few. I wonder how many are still burying that grudge. Anyway, that's beside the point. We moved out of a comfortable situation that God had then shaken us in to an unknown situation where God was saying, I want you to just trust. And for the next 10 years or so, we, we moved up to Leeds and we then lived by faith, um, relying on God's provision for our needs. And God was gracious to us in providing for us. Now, I don't say that to make myself appear like some sort of Abrahamic figure for you. But as a challenge, are there things that you're holding on to? Are there things that you're really clinging to in your life? And when the call of God comes, it's really, really disturbing. 
Because this is what happened to Abraham. Now, Abraham lived in a, a town called Ur, U-R, in the Chaldeans, quite some distance away. We'll look at that later on this evening. Quite some distance away from where he ended up. And his journey there is very briefly mentioned in this chapter. But his experiences thereafter are the stuff of many, many stories throughout the, the Old and New Testament. But who was Abram? Who was he? Well, Scripture gives us three pictures of who Abram was. He is called the friend, the faithful, and the father. He is the friend, the faithful, and the father. He is called, in James chapter 2, verse 23, the friend of God. The friend of God. There's somebody else in scripture that's called exactly the same as that. That's Moses in Exodus chapter 33. As a believer, in John chapter 15, we are told that we are the friends of God. What does that mean to you, being a friend of God? How does that make you feel? Do you feel that it's not a friendship that's working very well, or you don't deserve to be a friend of God, or that you've never really thought of God as being a friend, more like a, a ruler or a lord? But Abraham was called the friend of God. He's called faithful Abraham in Galatians chapter 3. Now, faith in what? In Hebrews 11, we, talk, we, we read about faith as being the evidence of things not seen. And Abraham, whilst he's living in Ur of Chaldees, Chaldeans, he has no idea what lays ahead of him. But he has faith in God. Hebrews 11 also says that without faith, we cannot please God. And yet Abraham is the friend of God. Which, incidentally, makes me wonder more about God's love when I see what Abraham gets up to and he's the friend of God. That selfless love of our Heavenly Father in spite of ourselves. As we read in this chapter, the lies already in Abraham's life as he was looking out for himself. But he's also called the father, the father of us all in Romans chapter 4. The father of us all. This is the man that we're looking at very briefly this evening. The friend, the faithful, the father. And yet he's given a call. He's sitting there in the uh, comfortable life that he has with his family. Do you know anything about Ur as a city? Where it is? What it's like? It's a long way east of Jerusalem. It's in far Iraq. 
We'll see a map later on this evening. But it's the centre of the worship of the moon. It's where there's affluence, but there's idolatry. It's where there's comfort, but absolute no knowledge of the Heavenly Father. And from that, Abraham is called into special service. He's given a very, very specific task. And it's very simple. Just get up and go. Go to a land that I will show you, and I will bless you. Now, the call of God can come on all sorts of different people in various different ways. And when you're looking through Scripture, you can see that there are dozens of people who have very, very different callings to do something very, very specific. Now, I'm going to show, or get Owen to show up a slide, which you might not be able to read because there's so many words on it. But let me just run through it for you. Noah was called to build a boat. Abraham was called to leave his home. Isaac was called to stay somewhere. Joseph was called to have spiritual authority over his family, his brothers. Moses was called to free Israel. Aaron was called to be a high priest. Eleazar was called to run the tabernacle and become the great high priest. Joshua was called to lead the children of Israel into Canaan. Deborah and Barak were called to defeat the Canaanites. Samson was called to defeat the Philistines. David was called to be a king. Elijah was called to preach judgment. Ezra to preach the word of God. Nehemiah to build a wall. Esther to save her people. Isaiah to become the greatest prophet. Ezekiel to be watchman. Daniel to interpret dreams. Jonah to warn Nineveh. John the Baptist to prepare the way of Christ. Peter and Andrew to follow Christ. Stephen to be a deacon. Philip to be an evangelist. Saul to be a missionary evangelist pastor. Barnabas to help Paul. Jude to write a book. Does God call people in exactly the same way to do exactly the same things? We have a very interesting way of looking at Christian life sometimes. And that is that God wants us to be like somebody else. We look around at all of the great heroes of the faith, past and present, and we think, oh, I wish I was like that. I wonder if God wants me to be like that. I want to be a fill in the blank. But God has his hand on his people for very, very specific tasks. Now we read in this scripture, and we'll be looking at this, this passage in a little bit more depth in a minute, but we read here that he was not a young man by our standards when he received this call. 75 years old. He was getting long in the tooth before God called him. Moses was old when he did his work. So take heart, Eric. There's room yet for the rest of your life and those of us who are the wrong side of 50 or 60 or even the right side. 
It doesn't matter. God calls his people to do his work. Could be build a boat, could be write a book, could be become a pastor or a missionary or evangelist or to help somebody or to save somebody. It could be anything. God's call comes to Abraham in his city of idolatry and comfort and riches. And he says, get up and go to where I want you to be. So let's look at the call itself. And here we find that we can see some aspects of God's character. Now I said that this isn't the start of the call. If you want to look, you can read at the end of chapter 11 where we hear of Terah, who is Abraham's ancestor. These are the generations of Terah, Terah fathered Abraham and so on. Terah took Abraham, Abraham his son and Lot, the son of Haran, his grandson, and Sarai, his daughter-in-law, his son Abraham's wife, and they went forth together from Ur of the Chaldeans to go into the land of Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. And the days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. Now there is some discussion as to whether what we read of in chapter 12 is the first call or the second call of Abram. Now, I think it's more than likely that it's the second, for reasons I'll explain in a minute. God is gracious in his call. Here is a man of an idolatrous people who worships the moon god, and they leave Ur, and they don't get, well, they get a long way by our standards, but they don't get very far in the journey they have to make before they settle into another city, another center of the worship of the moon. And God says, I want you to do what I want me you to do. He was a member, Abraham, of a family of idolaters. You and I, we have backgrounds, we have characteristics in our lives that have put us at enmity with God. They separate us from what God wants us to be like. And yet, despite that darkness, despite that animosity that we might have had one day with him, God calls. It's grace expressed to his people. But it's also an effective call. Ur was highly civilized, and yet Abraham abandoned it. And any inheritance that he might have gained whilst he was there. It's interesting when you look at the uh, names of some of the, uh, the towns and places that are visited by the old patriarchs of the faith. Haran means parched. A dry land. It's from that point that the travellers that were going up that route would have struck across the um, uh, desert land. They'd have had their waters um, drawn from the river Euphrates. 
and they'd have gone across from Haran into the desert. And it's at Haran that this call comes. It's likely that he has been there 15 or so years and his father passes away. Now, I don't know, I'm going to infer from this, that he was still caught up in honouring his family and his heritage. That Abraham was still looking to look to his father, not the heavenly father. And so when they move, they all get up, they go up this, um, the, the rivers that are in that land, up to this place called Haran, and they stop and settle. And God says, come on, get up and go. Get up and go. So it's a gracious call to a person who's a, a member of an idolatrous tribe, and it's a, an effective call. It's a call to great blessing, which we'll look at later on, and it's a call of separation. And that's the hardest part. It's the call of separation. Leave everything behind. This is the thing that Lydia and I did, and it was hard to leave everything behind. And some people at the time said to us, what are you doing? Giving up a security. You're giving up a home. In three months' time, you don't know what's going to happen. But God knew. And God will often call us out of our familiarity into unfamiliarity. He'll take us from our comfort to maybe discomfort. He'll take us from the known to the unknown. He'll take us out. He'll separate us. The Bible uses another word for this. It's called sanctify. Put aside, put to one side for the service of God. Just some more observations here before we move on. The Lord said to Abraham, I will do this. And the Lord, uh, Abraham did what the Lord told him to. In verse 7, the Lord appeared to Abraham. I don't know, if you read this passage and you read these words, you think, okay, this is the story. I know this quite well. But there are some profound things going on here. Only elsewhere, in Psalm 29, is God referred to as the King of Glory. Remember the idolatry of Ur? This is the king of glory coming into a man's life. This is also the first recorded appearance of God after the banishment from uh, from Eden. Neither Noah nor Abel had this privilege. This is God breaking in to a man's life. But it's also, if you read chapter 11, very shortly after the fall of Babel, when idolatry ruled. When you uh, look at the word Babel, Babel means, or can equate to, judgment and the scattering of the nations. But Abraham is grace and the establishment of a nation or a people. 
go from the familiar to the strange requires confidence in this God, obedience to his word. I call the separation from the ties of man and things to the freedom that is in Christ. I call from the world to the word. A call to become a pilgrim passing through. I want to look at the response that Abraham makes, or Abraham makes to the call. How does he answer? He's obedient. He gets up and he goes. It's fairly straightforward, isn't it? He obeys God. Um, so Abraham went in verse 4, as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abraham was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. And he takes all of the things that he has in his family. He brings out from this land of parchment him, Lot, Sarai, uh, all of his male and female servants and all of his home. And he begins a life of transition or transitory existence, moving from place to place, living in tents, not settling down. It's just occurred to me, Babel was the first time when people settled down. God had called the uh, the the people in the Old Testament, to go forth and to go out into all the world. But Babel, they said, no, we're going to settle down here. We're going to build ourselves a city. And there's a lot to be said about whether that's a good or a bad thing. But God destroys that attempt, scatters the nations in accordance with what he wanted to begin with anyway. And then he says to Abraham, go and move around. Move a great distance as well. Now, obedience has a number of aspects to it which we need to think about. We need to obey what God says, get up and go. We need to obey what Christ says concerning Christian living. We need to obey the gospel to respond to the call of God upon the hearts of people. We need to obey in submission to higher authority. This is all that Abraham did, not really knowing Christ, but nevertheless, this appearance of God and his obedience. Obedience should also be from the heart. It should be willing. It should be unreserved undeviating, constant. Abraham did as he was asked. He got his things together and he obeyed. He moved on from a land of parchment to the promised unknown future. And what did that result in? Or what were we, are we told that the response would leave to? I can't spell response, by the way, I've just realised. Um, what's the result of this call? Well, it's one of blessing, of promised blessing. 
I will make you a great nation. I will make you, I will bless you. I will make your name great. I'm going to return to that in a moment or two. I just want to think of what blessing might mean to you. Does it mean a bestowal of good? Does it mean of material things? Does it mean the opposite of curse? Well, those things are ideas that pop up in the Old Testament here and there. Bestowal of good things. The accumulation of wealth and material things. The removal or the, uh, the absence of curse. But quite often... It's used as a formula of words which mean just blessing, which is carried over into the New Testament. And the New Testament's concept of blessing is spiritual good. Spiritual good. Now I think you'll see this as we look at it in a few minutes, that Abraham's blessing will be of a spiritual nature and not of a physical nature on its own. So here we have the friend of God. We have him being called to a very specific task. And he responds in faith and obedience, anticipating the blessings that God has promised. What does that mean for us? What lessons can we learn from Abraham's call? Well, Abraham is a man that we read of quite often and refer to as a man of great faith. And it comes out in profound ways here and there in his life, but it's also buried under the issues of disobedience and self-preservation and so on. Faith is expressed in a number of ways, but it involves a right understanding of what you believe God is to be, what he is like, what he can do. Is he trustworthy? Can he fulfill what he has said he will do? Does he really mean it? These are aspects of true faith. And that rests on what God's own testimony is like. If God has said it and Jesus has said it, it's therefore true because they cannot lie. And when God calls to Abraham and says, get up and go to a land that I will show you and I will make of you a great nation, we know that to be true because God has said it. But faith is also a supernatural and divine gift. It's something you can't earn or develop yourself it's something that God bestows it is given to the individual Abraham was a man whose faith was in the moon at night now when we left home this evening and drove up the road we saw the full moon or what I thought was a very nearly full moon anyway and there are still people in this world today who will be worshipping that or the sun, giving daily greetings to the sun. 
That's the wrong sort of faith. A faith and a belief in a created thing. But we are called to have faith and belief in the creator. And of course that means that when he calls upon our lives, there are a number of things that we need to get right first. Now, sometimes we'll come to the issues of faith and say, well, I wish God would just tell me who to marry or what college to go to or what job or what, where we should live or things like that. But God's primary concern is how do we approach this thing? How do we approach scripture? What is our relationship like with his revelation in his written word? And that's the big question. See, if we know what God has said fundamentally here, if we know what the scripture says, if we have a good relationship in obedience and walking in accordance with his word, then other things will follow. Abraham had to get up and go. He had to respond to the word of God. And if he did that... It's almost like a conditional promise. If he does that, then blessings will follow. And we have the revelation of God, the word of God, in our scriptures, as our scriptures. And so by living in accordance with that obedience, understanding that this is what the... The one who cannot lie and does not change his mind and is there's no shadow of a turning by which I mean, you know, when the sun tracks its way across the sky, shadows move. Well, God doesn't track his way anyway. He is consistent, statutory source of light. He does not change. There is no shadow of turning with him. So in order for us to discern what specific call we have, we must first apply the principles of Scripture. And more expressively, your word is a light unto my path and a lamp for my feet. When we want to respond to God's call, we need to begin by walking in his way. When Abraham got down to Egypt, he um, decided that because he, uh, his wife was a very attractive lady, that he would weave a, a web of lies to protect his own skin. And Sarai drew the attention of the princes of Egypt, and he drew the, that then drew the attention of Pharaoh, and Pharaoh then had um, Sarai come and join his household. And we read, not beginning, but at the end of this portion of scripture that he made her his wife, thinking that she was Abraham's sister. Now, I don't know what that entails, but can you imagine the implication? Because Abraham had forgotten already what it was to walk in obedience with the general principles of God, that you just trust him because he said so in that instance, but because of what the Bible says to us now, he'd walked away from that. And the word of God was no longer a light to his path. It was no longer a lamp that showed him which way to walk. And he went after his own ideas and his own desires. And it could have ended in absolute tragedy. 
But the gracious call of God upon a person's life is not, with, is not withstood by our error or our inability to obey. Because when Pharaoh found out in this passage, he effectively said, sorry, but get lost, go. Oh, and by the way, here's a lot of things for you to take, some riches as well. Now this, this sort of has a parallel with the, with the Exodus, does it not? When God's people are in Egypt and curses fall, plagues fall, as we read of in here, and then Pharaoh says, go and take these things with you. So God's call and his grace and his effectiveness is not thwarted by our inability to discern what God really wants us to do. In Mark's chapter, uh, Gospel chapter 4, we can read these words. Consider carefully what you hear. With the measure you use, it will be measured to you, and even more. Whoever has will be given more. Whoever does not have, even that which he has will be taken from him. What does that mean in the light of this? It means that if we walk in obedience with God, more blessings, the blessing of obedience is enough, but more blessings will fall, will fall upon us. Now, I don't mean that if we, are, if we say our prayers, if we do the right things, and God will give us a nice shiny car every other month or something like that. But the spiritual blessings will come down upon us because we are already hankering after those things. But if we don't want anything to do with that, if we want to stay worshipping the moon, then we'll stay in Haran, the point of parchment, dry dustiness. But to get up and go, leave that behind, means that blessings are awaiting us, ultimately in heaven. But blessings will fall. But the call is also costly. It is very costly. Jesus spoke a lot about taking up your cross and following him. And it would not have been easy for Abraham to leave Ur and his family and his friends. He took his family with him, but the extended family and the contacts that he'd made in Haran and Ur and all of that. And Luke's gospel says this, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, which Abraham failed to do. Deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. What is it good is it for a man to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit his, forfeit his very self? The question naturally rises from that is, how are you responding to God's call upon your life? Are you living in dependence upon him? Are you living in separation from sin? Are you living in the fact that he has a desire for you, that a persistent call? This is the second call that Abraham had to move on. Or are you hankering after those promises that will come to you when you walk out in obedience?
I'm conscious of the time, and I think I've said enough already, but let's just finish off by having a look at the next slide. This is the journey he made. So he starts off in the first arrow up here on the left, right, sorry, in Ur. You can see where it is now. It's a jolly long way from where he ends up. And they travel up the riverside, past Babylon, up towards Nineveh, and Mari, and Haran up there, at the top middle. And that's where they stop. That's where they stop. Now Hebrews says, as he's making this journey, which isn't a short distance, there's a scale, I think, on the bottom right, gives you some sense of distance there. By faith, Abraham, when called to go to a place he would later receive as his inheritance, obeyed and went, even though he did not know where he was going. By faith, he made his home in a promised land like a stranger in a foreign country. He lived in tents, as did Isaac and Jacob, who were heirs with him of the same promise. He was looking forward to the city with foundations, whose architect and builder is God. You go from Ur up what's known as the uh, Fertile Crescent, up past the river, across the top, and then down the Mediterranean coastline into Israel and on towards the places that God had him to go. He does go further south into uh, Egypt, which is a jolly long distance. I reckon that's about a thousand miles he travels. That's walking up and down the length of this country three or four times. Can you do that? in obedience to God, because that's what it cost him. But he was called to go to a new land, a place where all the old things were forgotten and done away with, and new blessings were to come. And in this new land, God promises down here where Abraham is, that he will make him a great nation. Now, I just want to finish by looking at the promises that God made. As Christians, or even as people, actually just ordinary folk, but as Christians who have received the call of God, what offspring do you have? Not children. I don't mean marital couples and, and babies, but spiritual offspring. Is there anybody that you're speaking to? Is there anybody that is in your realm and sphere of influence that you're trying to bring to God and help them grow? Because that's the call of God upon his people, to go somewhere, next door, to grannies, to a country a long, long way away and have spiritual children to be a blessing for others because I'll make you a great nation. I will increase the influence that you have by my spirit as you share the gospel, as you do, as you walk in obedience. But also, are we a... Blessed people. 
Are we people who enjoy the goodness of God in our lives? Because, sorry, the slide's come. If we go back to the previous slide, we make that really long journey in our spiritual walk. If we go from somewhere like Surrey all the way north to Yorkshire, forsaking everything for what God has called you to do, will you be blessed? Will you find that in your life, God is smiling upon you. And if he is, tell somebody about it. Don't keep it secret. God also promises Abraham that he will have a great name. I will make your name great. And I just want to think about this. What is it you want in your life? Do you want to be known as a great evangelist or a great philanthropist or a holy person or a humble person or something that you have achieved by yourself? Are you a great father or mother or a good neighbour or are you a, a, a willing servant in the office? Do people know you by what you do and what you have done for others? And is all of that of your own making? Because in this world, that's what we're encouraged to do, to be the best we can, to do what we can, to live the life that we can. But God says to Abraham, I will make your name great. I will bless you. I will build you up. It's not about what Abraham does, as we know. It's what God does. He calls us in this world to be transitory, to make that long journey from Ur, a life of idolatry, all the way around, stopping along the way and getting encouraged to move on again, living in tents as pilgrims. But I don't know what you understand by the word pilgrim. Do you mean homeless? Do you mean wanderer? Abraham was a pilgrim. We're called to be pilgrims, not wandering aimlessly through the world, seeking after God's blessing wherever we can find it, but purposefully with his call upon our lives, knowing that we've got this long journey to make and we're not settling anywhere until we reach the final destination, which is God's promise. For a Christian, it's not moving from here to Kosovo, it's moving from darkness to light, from earthly passions to heaven. It's from not knowing God to being a friend of God and not stopping along the way, but moving all the time in that general direction. I've spoken long enough about this passage and there's tons more I'd love to share even in this short just four verses to be honest um, there is so much depth I would encourage you to go and have a look at this just in these two incidences in his life the good and the bad see what God says to you